This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23, follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Hey, man. I'm in the presence of greatness talking to you. See, I'm not going to fall for this trap. Yeah. See, let me tell y'all what's um, about to happen. See, Jamar is going to try to get me to announce something. And then what he's going to do is, oh, so now you're the man, the myth, the legend. I'm not going to fall for We've it. We've always known this. I'm not going to do We've it, We've always Jamar. known that. No, uh, I hear you have some pretty important- trying to be slick. We coming back. Look, <laughs> We coming back and you trying to be slick already. Look, I'm, I'm just taking a page from your book, trying to give honor where honors due. And I am pleased to announce that finally and officially Tyler Burns has been named vice president for The Witness. So congratulations, brother. Snaps and claps all around. <laughs> well, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. I'm very humbled by it. And to be a part of this wonderful team officially in that role and to be a part of a broader movement, man, just a small part of what God is doing in the church today and in the expression of of what black Christianity is um, within our context in America um, and throughout the world, because we just received so many things from people who have just been encouraged by what we do, even in South Africa and England and other places. And so. I'm just honored by that man and very grateful to the Lord and to you for giving me this opportunity. Listen, listen, this man is being super humble, Christ-like. That's great. But I'm also learning from him that that, that we need to praise people when they do praiseworthy things. Y'all just don't realize how big of an impact Tyler Burns has had on this ministry, both the podcast and the website and me personally. I mean, I will call this brother, text this brother. He will taught and just spit knowledge. I'm constantly impressed by the depth of wisdom he already has. And he's shown himself a faithful husband and father, a gifted preacher and pastor. He has such a sharp vision for this ministry, for the witness of what we're trying to do. I rely on him in so many ways that earthly speaking, I can't even imagine doing this work without him. And so it was easy, right? Like he's already doing all of these things that a vice president is supposed to do. And so we just finally put the label on there. And it was it was an easy choice, brother. So I just thank you for all your service to this ministry. Um, I thank you for the way you've allowed God to shape you. And I appreciate and love you, brother. Man, thank you, brother. That means so much to me, man. That's an honor. Man, you you using my phrases now too. Give hey, honor to honors. I know see? it's not original with me, but you know that's one of my things, man. You know I'll be trying to do that. But thank you, brother. That means a lot. Absolutely. I also, I just want to say this, man. I was on Amazon and I was looking up your name. I don't know why. Why was I looking up your? Oh ah. yeah, you got a book coming out, <laughs> January twenty nineteen. That pre order is live, right? The Kindle pre order is live for Color of Compromise. The first book by one soon to be 
Dr. Jamar Tisby. That's really crazy, man. That's exciting. When I saw it, it was real. I was like, yo, this is going to be something else. So I went ahead and pre-ordered. Oh, so nice. I'm going to get that sent digitally to me. <laughs> yeah, man. Got to support the ministry. Come on, man. That's you want to talk up. about the book a little bit? That's what's up. Yeah. So The Color of Compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity in racism is coming out January 2019. So I hate to bug y'all with it, So, but you're going to be hearing a lot more in the coming months. I'm still working on the first draft as we record. So if you hear this, please, please pray for me. It's my first book, but I'm excited about it, man. It, it, it comes as uh, sort of the impetus from a lot of the work that we do. So I go to many, many churches, conferences, and different venues and talk about sort of racial justice and race relations, particularly in the church. And I'm always so disappointed because people at those events will be like, yeah, yeah, we love what you're saying. We get it, you know, and they have all this enthusiasm and then nothing changes. And to me, this this issue of of racism and white supremacy that that has been embedded in the American church took on a new level of urgency. It was already urgent, but it took on a new level of urgency as I began studying American history and seeing just how deliberate and intentional that Christians were in putting up walls between the races. And so I said, if, if, if people put that much energy into keeping us apart, then we are going to have to expend even more energy to tear down those walls. But people don't realize that because they don't know the history. So the color of compromise brings together in a historical survey of U.S. history, many, many examples of how the American church, particularly sort of evangelical Protestantism, has been walking hand in hand with racism mm. from slavery to Jim Crow segregation, even to the present day. And the hope is not just to leave you in that very depressing history, um, but the hope is that when you learn more about it, you'll actually be motivated to do more about it. Man, that's so exciting. I'm, I'm just really happy that you're able to finally just concentrate everything that you know, all these things that you're learning into one volume, which I think is going to be so impactful and helpful for the church at large. So man, you guys be on the lookout for Color of Compromise. Where where do they need to go, man, to follow all the things? Obviously you have the witness, obviously you have your personal social media, but give them the book website, man, and where they can go and follow along. See, I'm talking to a pro. You already knew I needed to, to, to give that plug. So the Come on, bro. You already know, man. Every, everybody, if you listen to Pastor Mike and you don't get Color of Compromise, like, I mean, you can keep listening, but I'm just going to say, like, why are you listening? And then you can keep listening, but I'm just asking, so you need to have a good answer. But go ahead, man. Give me the book website. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, the best way to do it is keep up with a newsletter, and you can do that just by going to thecolorofcompromise.com, thecolorofcompromise.com. It'll ask you for your email address. I will not blow up your inbox, but I would love to have you walk with me in this journey. I also do a ton of posting, not on my personal Facebook page, but on my professional writers page. So if you go on Facebook, I have a professional writers page, and then you can kind of keep up with all my random thoughts on there, as well as a lot of the historical facts that I'm learning while researching this book. So I appreciate that. So speaking of scholarship and speaking of the impact within the American church, we have to talk about something. And Jamar and I, we've been having these text threads and phone conversations back and forth about really a monumental 
occasion for the church in a negative way because Dr. James Cone has passed mm-hmm. away. And for those who are unfamiliar with James Cone, number one, I'm not surprised if you don't know who he is, whether you're black or white um, or any other ethnicity. I'm just not surprised if you don't know who he is. And we'll talk about that. But also for for the reality that someone who has invested so much groundwork and theological foundation for many of the things that are happening right now in the church, this reckoning of justice, um, that he built the framework and groundwork along with many others for decades. Um, Dr. Cohn was a theologian who was a preacher and he was a professor at Union Theological Seminary. He's written tons of books, Black Theology and Black Power, God of the Oppressed, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And Jamar, what would you say is was your first introduction to Cohn? Do you remember your first introduction to him? You know, I'm I'm late to the game for reasons we'll talk about later, but it was the cross and the lynching tree is where I first heard about Cone. And and even that title, I mean, it's so gripping. And I think that's what stuck in my brain. So I was probably, I was definitely in my adulthood. Um, It it, might have been around early seminary because I was looking into theology from an African-American context and that I stumbled across him. I wasn't necessarily directed to him, Um, but I was begged off. I mean, there, there, there weren't a lot of people in my circles, encouraging me to access Cone, which mm-hmm. now, you know, I'm kind of mad about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy because actually my first introduction to Cone was this book, little, it's a lesser known Cone book called For My People, Black Theology and the Black Church. And so the subtitle of it is, Where Have We Been and Where Are We Going? And it was actually very helpful for me because it gave an overview of where Cone at the time was, where the movement was, and you know where where the movement was going. So it was a helpful summary of everything. Um, and so there are foundational texts for understanding Black theology of liberation, Black theology, and Black power. Obviously, Martin and Malcolm, um, A Dreamer and Nightmare, is very found. I mean, all his books are really helpful to understanding contours of his thought and and. Each one is kind of its own thing. So they all connect, but each one has particular nuances that can really draw out some of the ways in which his theology was a helpful addition to what many of us, and a helpful corrective in some ways, from what many of us were taught and what many of us came to believe. So you wrote an article, um, interestingly enough, entitled James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Memorial. And you talked about being at the lynching memorial on the same day, within the same weekend that Cone passed away. And so can you talk a little bit about what that felt like and what motivated you to write this article? And then we can get into some of the ways in which we're a little raw <laughs> about this. We're a little raw, we're a little mad. But but talk about the the juxtaposition between Cone dying and then also the opening of the lynching Right. So Cone writes The Cross and the Lynching Tree in 2011. And this cat has been around writing and teaching for 40 years already. And this this book, though, quickly becomes one of his most significant works. And The Cross and the Lynching Tree, as the title indicates, is sort of juxtaposing the lynching of Black people in America with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so Cone calls the crucifixion a type of lynching. And in the sense that 
a lot of the black people lynched were innocent of any significant crime as a sort of crucifixion. And he, he, he writes a whole book just making these, these really intriguing parallels. And what he's doing in a bigger way is articulating how black people have interpreted the, their racial suffering in spiritual terms and uses the, the cross as, right. as um, sort of the, the lens for that. And so he writes that book, but then um, the same weekend he dies two days earlier the nation's first memorial dedicated to the victims of lynching opens in Montgomery, Alabama. And I got to go on the grand opening and it, it, it's an indescribable experience. The, the way they did the memorial, they have these iron columns, which are rusted. They're, they're deliberately rust colored. Each column, there's 800 of them represent a county where a lynching took place. And that's just the ones they found, right? So on each column are the names of the lynching victims. And you start and the columns Hmm. are at eye level, but it's on a ramp. You're walking on a ramp. And so you descend. And as you descend, the columns get higher and higher. They're suspended from the ceiling. And so soon you're looking up and it's almost like bodies hanging from a tree. And so... It's extremely powerful in that sense. And to me, it was striking that we finally have a memorial where America has to come face to face with this gruesome past. An anti-lynching law was never even passed in Congress. It passed the House once, but it never passed um, in the whole Congress. And and we've never been honest about Mm. lynching, right? Uh, So here we have this memorial that forces us to turn to lynching and and acknowledge it. And then the man who wrote <laughs> wrote the book about the cross and the lynching tree dies two days later. And it's almost as if what I wrote in that article, right. I said, James Cone laid down his cross to take up his eternal rest. And the lynching memorial in Montgomery challenges a new generation to take up the cross of justice today and continue with the struggle mm-hmm. for black liberation. So I just thought that was intriguing. Yeah. And, and it's so fascinating, I think, to see the ways in which his work has kind of seeped in throughout the movements for mm. justice and the movement for the oppressed and the vulnerable and the marginalized. Because originally, and this is something that we would like to say just contextually, Black churches by and large did not preach what we would call liberation theology. Like There was a term that was co- coined by Cone, Black liberation theology, but it wasn't like this was the steady diet of what was being preached in black churches, even at that time, even during the height of segregation and Jim Crow laws. But what there was, there wasn't a system in place, but what there was, was this Mm. understanding that the scripture says something about this condition, that the scripture talks about our situation and the scripture can speak to it and that justice wasn't ethic, but this idea of black theology. So there was kind of a a disconnect between what was happening in the academy and what was happening in the church. Now I think we can say that there are far more um, young black ministers or ministers within an African-American context who are familiar with Cone, who have read his work. His work is considered to be foundational now for understanding some of these things and approaching these things, even within a church context. So originally there was kind of this critique And I think a lot of for my people kind of came out of that, this idea that you're talking about this Mm -hmm. in the academy, 
we don't recognize this in our churches. There's this massive disconnect. And so I think over time, especially with Cross and Malinching Tree, Cone was able to bridge that gap and really to speak incisively into the ways in which you know, the Black church can use parts of, of Black liberation theology and can use parts of what, quote unquote, Black theology um, to disciple people and to help people understand certain things that are happening in their area. So I, it, it's fascinating to me because now... I, I, if he had died years earlier, I don't know if people would have responded the same, if people were reacting, but right. now you take into account cross yeah, a particular the, moment. Yes, the cross on the lynching tree and then state violence. It was like, oh, okay, well, we can kind of synthesize these things and how important yeah, it is. Yeah, we, we, we can see that now. Exactly. And so that's yeah, it, that's what's funny about it is now it's, it's a whole different landscape for his teachings and ideas. It very much is. And, and but the historical context of, of, of how he started doing this theology is important, too. So his first book, Black Theology and Black Power, came as an attempt. Cone wrote this. This is why he did it. He said, for me, the burning theological question was, how can I reconcile Christianity and black power? Martin Luther King Jr.'s idea of nonviolence and Malcolm X's by any means necessary philosophy. So he's looking at Martin and Malcolm. He's looking at nonviolence. He's looking at militant action. Right. He's looking at Christianity and he's looking at the black plight in America. And, and so much of Cone's theology and those who follow after him is an attempt to address black faith in the midst of white supremacy. And mm. that's a perennial question. So Cone formalized it and wrote it in a systematic theology but black people have been doing this as Christians in America since the 1600s. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's the funny thing. You know? That's the funny thing is, yes, there was a system in place that he helped to craft and create. But it's also important, I think, to acknowledge that there are there is an expanse of authors and scholars who have been involved in building pieces of this and it's still being built even now. Like so it's not Cone was kind of considered the godfather of black theology, but it's not that he was the only person and it's not that he's the only voice. Right. And so I think right. sometimes there's a lack of understanding of of the scholarship within black Christianity. So what people do is they pull out Cone and they say let's spend our time trying to refute Cone or trying to poke holes in Cone and then Cone is kind of the the foundation for everything. So I guess you just once we pull Cone out, then everything falls apart. No, there's critiques of Cone. There's there's pushback. There's adjustments. There's, yeah, from black from people. black people. There's degrees. I mean, even from people within his own family. Right. Like you know, so these are things that we yeah. see. I'm just saying, like these That's these right. are things that we see. His brother was a pastor. Exactly, yeah. he critiqued it. And so as we talk through that, it's not that Cone is the only voice or the only writer, but as you said. It's decades and centuries um, of scholarship that he is involved in and played an instrumental part um, in as well. But well, this is something that you mentioned. I mean, it, it, it's the flattening out of black absolutely. theology, right? <laughs> like it's just you can have this one person stand in for all of black thought, which happens, you know, in a thousand different ways. Of course, every Kanye day, right? stands you're, you're in only... now. Kanye refutes all of us. You know what I'm <laughs> yes. saying? Like I was. Listen, I was actually thinking about calling this episode uh, from Cone to Kanye, but I was like, I'm going to leave Kanye alone. I'm going to let him. Yeah, I was actually thinking about doing that. Anyway, so you're going to have some heads exploding. (laughs) I'm going to leave him alone. We'll touch on that at a later time, hopefully in in a more appropriate (laughs) sense. We'll touch on that. But 
Jamar, what would you say is the most helpful element of Cone's scholarship for you? Like, what did you draw most from him and what benefited you the most from his writing? You know what? So often it's not the content itself. It's merely that it exists, Hmm. if I can put Hmm. it that way. So the endeavor that Cone engaged in, which was to say, let's keep Christianity, but let's try to envision it without the white supremacy. And that in and of itself was sort of validation for Black people like me who love the Lord, but at every turn sort of encounter elements within this American brand of Christianity that denigrates the image of God and people who look like Hmm. me. And Cone came along and said, you know what? That's bunk. That's not even the true faith. So let's engage in this from a scholarly, academic, systematic perspective, and let's excise all of this white supremacy and the white gaze from Christianity and see how Christ and his mission and his words specifically speak to the Black situation in America. So so what Cone was doing was, I think, for generations of Black Christians, was giving them permission (laughs) to embrace both their Blackness and their faith. So even beyond the words on a page that, that he put down, merely engaging in this theological enterprise, I think was empowering for a lot of folks. Yeah, just the presence of it, the fact that it existed as something that we could pull from and glean. I'll never forget, actually, my first introduction to Cone, I didn't really know who he was and didn't make the connection. But I used to watch this thing called the State of the Black Union. Even when I was a kid, I used to nerd out about this stuff. I don't know why. You were woke yeah, when nah, you were a baby. I was, not, huh? I was definitely not. Nope, I was asleep. That was just dozed off. Um, but they used to have this thing. It was on C-SPAN. And so I watched C-SPAN sometimes. And so they'd have the state of the Black Union. And so they had all these different activists and medical professionals and pastors and politicians and professors, theologians, whoever, that would convene. And it would be these super panels. I mean, you get some crazy mixes of people. Um, from your Cornell West to your Al Sharptons or to you know James Cone, as I'll talk about, to all the people that you can think of who are movers and shakers. And I would watch because there would be a lot of pastors. And so I was kind of trying to get this sense of what was the climate of the church. And so it fascinated me. In 2003, Cone was there and they kicked it to him. They said, is the Black church too political? Has the Black church become too political or not political enough? And hmm. he said- you know, the black church, he was very careful, but he was like, the black church has adopted a gospel of success, like based upon the broad American dream. And this is on YouTube. You guys can go look at it. The black church has adopted this American dream, this gospel of success. And he's like, but that's not the message of the cross. The cross is a message of ultimate success, but through failure. And so the way in which he saw the vulnerable- the way in which he saw the marginalized, the way in which he saw the mm-hmm. oppressed and was moved by it. Like he's like, you know, at one point he said, there, there's black blood crying from the ground. And so people would look and say, man, what That's would right. motivate this guy to say some of the things that he said? And I'm like, man, if you see non-indictment after non-indictment after non-indictment after non-indictment, if you see <laughs> video after video after, he didn't even, he didn't even have that physical evidence 
that that viral evidence. He just saw it. And because he saw it and because he recognized injustice, because he recognized the plight of the oppressed, he says someone has to have a response. And so when people critique Cohen, I'm like, man, what is your response to this injustice? Don't don't talk to us about what you're what we're saying about Cohen. What is your response to this injustice? And if your response is silence, that's right, that's right. That's it's right. not tears, it's not mourning, it's not grief, it's not agony, it's not crying out to God and saying, Lord, save us now, help us, bring justice. If that's not your, your cry, you know, then I mean, what are you even talking about? And and maybe you're maybe you're missing the, the actual point itself, which is that there's a greater reality here and it's the pain of the oppressed, right? So anyway. Yeah. So there's, there's always, there's all kinds of liberation theology, right? There's, there's um, Latin American liberation theology. Which is there's crazy. We got to talk about that one. Liberation theology. Yo, we got to talk about, I mean, yo, it's crazy. It's so rich. <laughs> it's, there's Palestinian liberation theology. What unites these different theologies is uh, what Catholics would call a preferential option for the poor or a solidarity with the marginalized. And so liberation theologians basically say, you, you, you can't possibly understand the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ unless you understand it from the perspective of the, of the oppressed. And they put that as, as central, mm-hmm. right? And so for those who want to critique Cone, it's like you said, well, how are you addressing the issue of black oppression mm-hmm. yep. and in a central way, not in some, Oh, you know, well, you know sin is bad. Equal. And so God's going to take care of all sin. And then eventually they're going to be, you know, yeah. just preach the gospel, you know, all those things. So, so whatever critiques you have of Cone, the brother was at least trying to address the real lived situation of suffering, marginalization and racism that black people have been experiencing for centuries in this country. And he had to do that because the theology he was learning from white theologians and professors wasn't addressing those issues. So we're not sitting up here, and we got to address this too, Tyler, but we're not sitting up here saying we agree with everything Cone said. I don't even the agree only with thing everything I saying. say, so I don't know what's you know, <laughs> you know what I'm myself. saying. Like, come on, man. That's so true. Uh, so obviously that's not the point. I think the point we're trying to make is, is that the man has some helpful things to say, some things that we can learn from. But so often he gets dismissed out of hand because he's a, quote, black liberation theologian. Therefore, in certain circles, you don't have to listen to him. And that was bogus, man. Yeah. So I think one of the ways, one of the things we should talk about is the way in which the perspective of what black theology is and black liberation theology. I think, you know, obviously there are some people who still would find it very, those terms very offensive. But I think now it was kind of tagged in a dismissive, radicalized way. You know, watch this. Watch watch how people yeah. use the words black and African American. Like watch how people in the majority culture do that. Because I think it's very instructive. Wow. I think sometimes you'll see certain people will use African American positively for people in our community who agree with them. And then certain people will use black negatively to radicalize people who disagree with within our community. So I'm just saying that's just for free. Think about that the next time you're interacting with someone, <laughs> watch how they use black and African American. It's very telling. But I also think it's really important for us to address the fact that the the way we were introduced to Cone in many ways, um, once I once I figured out, okay, well, this is black theology, first seeing him in 2003, and then the interaction 
with him later on was from a negative sense. Like we're presenting to you heterodox theology. Yeah. So we are presenting to you this idea <laughs> that he's a heretic and we just want you to read to be aware to dismiss all that he's saying. And so you were talking to me and I was talking to you and we kind of both said the same thing at the same time. Man, I'm mad that I'm just now coming to an appreciation of yes. because people told me he was heterodox. They told me he was a heretic and so thus he must be dismissed. Talk about that, Jamar, right. because you were in seminary and I know you probably had the same yeah. thing happen. So talk about just the rawness and some of the frustration that you're feeling. Now <laughs> so first of all, I mean, there are folks out there listening or or who may get a hold of this who are like, what are y'all talking about? We Cone was the man. We always studied, read all his books in, in college or seminary or whatever. That's cool. That's cool. Good, good. But that was not my background. Mm-hmm. I went to seminary in a conservative, southern, um, you know, uh, just very white (laughs) seminary. And so we didn't often hear about Cone in a formal academic setting. And when we did, it was like you said, it was here's somebody who's wrong. (laughs) So either don't go to go to him or when you do. Go to him to pick out all the wrong guns things. blazing. Be ready. And it was never Bring out your microscope. Just guns blazing. Yeah, of course. Go armed. You know, it, it was never like hear the good things that he's saying. It was as if the 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 words black or white supremacy or whatever uh, happened to offend uh, white people just automatically disqualified James Cone from serious theological study. And so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't read Cone. Um, I didn't access his resources, and I didn't. Ironically, ironically, it wasn't until I entered this PhD program at a secular public university that I'm actually getting access <laughs> to Cone's Isn't that writing, crazy? which is is so interesting. So anyway, yeah, I'm kind of mad because. While I was in seminary particularly, but but just being a Christian in America in general, I'm constantly having to sort of scramble and search for ways to reapply and reimagine the theology I'm receiving from conservative white people in a way that speaks to the Black context. And had I been able to read and access Cone earlier, I would have had far more tools to be able to do that. I would have at least... Uh, felt a sense of <laughs> permission to right, do that. Right. Like I mentioned before, I would have at least felt a sense that, hey, this what you're what you're going through this this sort of angst to kind of figure out does Christianity really have something to say about black suffering and the black experience? That's legit. And here's a person who agrees with that, and and here's an attempt to do that. So yeah, man, I'm mad. I mean, how about you? Yeah, I think. A lot of my frustration is I didn't actually read Cone when I was trying to refute him. And so when I was younger and trying to refute him, I feel like there's a lot of people who don't read Cone in context and then don't read Cone with any sort of baseline understanding of what Cone was addressing, i.e. white supremacy, a system of whiteness, et cetera. And so they just read whiteness and blackness. And this is the thing, like, yo- if you can't get the 101 of what is racism, I don't expect you to get the 401 of understanding James Cone's theology. Like I don't I don't think you're going <laughs> to understand it. Like it's levels to this. 
Yeah, it's levels to this, and I'm kind of like, oh, it's not like I'm saying, you know, we have elitism or whatever. It's not an, it's not a statement towards like this elitist view of what we can understand versus others, but it's just there's context. Like he's stepping into, you're stepping into a context as a tourist, and you don't know any of the language, but then you point to things that you were wrong in your context and were bad and taboo in your context, and you see it in Cone's world, and you just dismiss it. And so I'm like, yeah, if you don't get the one-on-one of, hey, don't profile, you know, don't have racial bias, like implicit bias is actually a thing, you know, if you if you don't get those things, then I'm like, oh, I'm not really expecting too much um, from you as- Right, right. You know, I mean, because because Cone is using even- yeah, I was going to say, but Cone is even using the terms blackness and whiteness as sophisticated metaphors uh, for theological principles he's trying to exactly. unpack. So exactly. it, it, people are trying to import their sort of common social construct into a very kind of deeply thought out theological system that they haven't even taken the time to interact with personally. They've only heard from somebody who heard from somebody who said this is bad stuff. (laughs) And I think what's important to understand is from our perspective, and I talked about this a few years ago when there was this massive critique from people when Obama was leaving the, the presidential office. And there was just this massive critique from white Christians and white evangelicals of our our applauding of his service, our applauding of his virtue and integrity. And there was this massive critique. And I wrote this thread. I think it's still pinned on my Twitter account. But just this whole idea of, man, huh. we don't really, we don't really understand. I don't know why it's still pinned too, but I don't know. I just I was just like, this is the first this is the introduction of what you need to understand is black theology introduction. Um but it was funny because I was kind of sitting back and I was saying, yeah, we don't view people's flaws or our differences of opinions in the same way that others would. Like we come from a tradition of Uh, robust grace, like really robust grace enough to say my enemy can be redeemed. Grace enough to say mm. the racist and the oppressor needs the gospel. And so, yes, I fight for my freedom, but the redemptive suffering tradition of King would say, we can win someone with our kindness. Like we can win someone. And there's, there's, I mean, there's obviously there's tactics and there's strategies, but believe deep down in the heart. No, this is a heart condition and you can be changed even as we're organizing, even wow. as we're, we're making adjustments to our legal system. You, the oppressor, you, the racist, you, the bigot can be transformed by love. And so that whole concept makes us view quote unquote flawed people, which is all of us, again, all have we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Like we all have sinned. And so the recog- the recognition of that and this idea, this robust kind of theology that helps us understand grace from a black context, we say we're not hyper analyzing positions and discarding people based upon things that we would disagree with. Like we don't discard them because of that. There are people that we have interactions with within the black church and we have interactions with them and we look at their theology. We're like, ah, well, I would disagree with this, this, and this, and this. And so other people say, I'm not even going to sit on the same row as him. Right. He's not a brother. I'm just going to turn my back. We say, yo, he probably looks at this differently. We wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say, we'd be like, yeah, you know, yeah, we would disagree on this, but he's my brother. That's my sister. 
because see we this did. differently, but that's okay. I mean, this is from exactly. This is from <laughs> Baptist to Pentecostals. This is from Pentecostals to AME. This is from AME to um, a number of the PAW to holiness to all these different things where we went, we would fiercely debate these things, but we would not dismiss people. Mm. We'd not discard them. We'd not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And as we'll talk about in some other episodes, we've done that better in some ways than others. And so we're not perfect in that. But there's not this sense, there's a sense of healthy, in a healthy way, ecumenical um, view within the black church and foundation that gives us the ability to take a look at Cone or King or anybody else and say, yeah, in this, he had lots of points. But he's not, no one person represents the means of everything that we're supposed to understand about systematic theology and about the cross and about the atonement and about Christ and about God. No one person represents that. And part of the reason why we had to do that and develop that ability is because so much scholarship was from white Christians, many of whom had bigoted viewpoints. I mean, we had to figure out, okay, we got to figure out how are we going to still like use, because there wasn't scholarship at that point. There wasn't as much scholarship from our community. So how are we going to pick around certain people to say, yeah, he had a point, but man, this dude was crazy. This dude would, you know, he would enslave us or he would support the system that would enslave us. Yeah, I was so we say, have to develop that with our oppressors. <laughs> if we weren't able to sort of uh, filter our theological intake in America. Well, we wouldn't be no black Christians. I mean, we've had to do that from the jump when, which again, we always have to say, it's not as if black people were introduced to Christianity in America. It was in Africa long before it was in Europe. Um, but speaking of African-Americans right. in particular, it's, it's not as if black people were unaware that, their slave owner and oppressor was teaching them a religion. But somehow through that, there's there's truth here somewhere. Now I got to filter out all the white supremacy stuff, all the fact that this man is holding a bull whip over my back and is threatening me. And I've got to look beyond this person to the God above and, and, and find the truth that is there, despite the flaws and the sinfulness of the person who's conveying the message. So black people have been <laughs> well-versed in doing that. And it gets to your point, Tyler, of, of being sort of more broad-minded, more ecumenical in, in our understanding of theology in the sense that we recognize we can learn from a lot of different people, a lot of different sources, and, and taking you know a good idea from this theologian or that theologian doesn't mean we co-sign everything that person has written or taught, not at all. Uh, doesn't mean we won't let that person in the church or preach at in the pulpit on some certain topics, right? So I think there's been, in my experience within sort of conservative evangelicalism, and it's more acute, I got to say, when it's a person of color, that if there's something we disagree with- Talk about that, man. You out. Oh, for real, bro. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It, 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 it is such a ridiculous standard. It is, it's, it's the denigration of the, honestly, the intelligence of people of color, particularly when it comes to theology, is basically saying, we don't really have anything to learn from them and the way they do Christianity. Y'all come and learn from us. And the more 
of our theology you adopt, suddenly the more orthodox you become and the more acceptable Mm. you become. But anything, any sort of theology that you do, particularly that is trying to address issues of race and justice, eh, you know, that's JV, if it's orthodox. You know, most of the time they'll just reject it out of hand as being not, not part of the gospel, right? But even if they do accept it, right. it's still on a lower tier than the quote unquote formal theology or whatever. So I always get that sense. Yeah. And it's, it's just this disgusting double standard because y'all got some real bad skeletons in your closet with the theologians <laughs> you look to. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, here's what I would say, brother. Like this is, you know, to kind of bring it home to the to the lynching memorial and just kind of this whole idea of the cross and the lynching tree. If black Christians can see white Christians lynch their brothers and sisters, stand around by the thousands and auction off body parts and eat chicken while people are being strung up to trees, being emasculated, like being killed and in some cases skinned alive and still go to church on Sunday. Mm. Y'all, y'all can interact with Cone. Y'all can interact with Cone. You can do it. It's it's gonna be okay. Like you can interact with Cone without dismissing him. Because if if our brothers and sisters who came before us can interact that deeply with a God who was still saving people who were oppressing them and killing them and terrorizing them, and come on, man. I mean. You're okay. You can you can read Cone. You can read God of the Oppressed. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. You you gonna come out. Jesus holds you. Okay. Uh, you don't have to worry that that he's gonna see you reading James Cone and be like, "Huh, you're out." <laughs> <laughs> Man, listen. Like, I just I just want to say this. Like, I deeply appreciated. And when I found out that he, I deeply appreciated Doctor Cone. And when I found out that he died. It did something to me because every everything I've I've heard from him and everything I've seen from him has been this man was truly full of love, but his love extended to his people and that made him different. Mm-hmm. And I remember one lady asked him at one event, I think it was maybe a year or two ago, she was like, What what are, what am I supposed to do? I'm tired of educating. I'm tired of educating white people, white Christians. When is their education going to start? When are they going to start educating themselves? And he was like, you know, he said, I really resonate with this idea. I resonate with what you're saying. But our job is to do what God has called us to do and to pray for the people that we're talking to because God's going to do the changing of them. We can't change them, but God can. So our job is to teach, to preach, to be a witness, pun intended. Yeah. And God's going to deal with the listeners. Mm. And that perspective was so challenging and helpful because I sat back and I said, how, how often do I get weary? And the man who is seen as the devil in some, some circles would say, I'm praying for the people who are using my quotes out of context. It's cool. God's going to get them. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to stop bearing witness, but I'm praying for them because that's all I can do. And so in that spirit, that's the spirit I remember of Dr. Cohn, and that's how much, um, that's why I appreciate him so much. 
That's a great word, man. So, yeah, hopefully folks will at least read more broadly. <laughs> um, I think that's that's a reasonable ask of Christians who have the armor of God. We're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. And as we as we sort of acknowledge the passing of this theological giant, whether you agree or disagree with him, we can agree that he has had an enormous influence that we need to pay attention to. Amen, bro. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.